The next session um, is, going, is, is entitled Right, um, and for this I'd like to um, call to the stage uh, friend, uh, colleague, uh, co-inspirer to Medicine Unboxed, uh, Sean Ellion, writer, surgeon, Gabriel Weston, and uh, writer, Sarah Moss. Um, so we're, 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 this is dangerous to set this out at the start, but um, we're going to try hard not to pull any punches um, on this and the last session, because actually the whole business of the right and wrong thing to do um, is a core frontier stroke fracture in medicine, as, as came up a bit last night in our, in our debate. And although I, I chair the Hospital Ethics Committee at Cheltenham, Gloucestershire, and although ostensibly, much as I can rationally decide what the right thing to do with a drug or indeed an operation might be, and I can rationally arrive at the logically correct or tr morally true thing to do, for a fact, if the same patient came to see six oncologists, let's say, following an operation for breast cancer or some such, they would get two or three opinions, at least. Fair comment? Maybe 12. Maybe 12. <laughs> and so our own personal um, beliefs, prejudices, and values very much enter that um, process of what it is that we ought to do in a particular situation. And that is not limited to the patients, the clients, the persons who are suffering, but in fact is as true on the other side of that membrane-thin um, line. So Gabriel, I just wondered if we could start with you on that. At the beginning of dirty work, you say um, doctors need to learn to tell a yarn. Um, they, they, they dress it up in nice language, like we'll call it a history, but you're almost saying that well, you're saying at the beginning of the book, and it's the first thing we do when we meet a patient. Where, so we're creating a story mm. and interpreting them. So already, immediately, the subjectivity is in there, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's actually something that Sarah kind of investigates a lot in her writing as well. And I'm, I think it's a really interesting idea that we like to think of ourselves as doctors as neutral um, interlocutors, in a way, of the symbols which are our patient's physical experience into a therapeutic or diagnostic language. And we like to think when we're taught that process at medical school that it's a transparent kind of translation of one set of symbols into another. I.e. hard facts of symptoms and signs yes. translated onto paper. Or, yes, yeah. or into a history mm. that leads to a diagnosis and to a treatment. And, of course, it, it isn't like that at all. And in order, when you're accruing the facts from what the patient is telling you and showing you and from the examination, all the time you're discarding things, you're trying to shape things. If you try and shape them too soon, you go down a blind alley and then you have to come back and try and retrieve the ones you've discarded in order to try out another path. But in any case, the whole process is... Is, um, is far from neutral. 
And that process of discarding, um, modifying, and probably even embellishing, what, um, what's feeding into that? Why are we, you know, what's, what, sort of, what sort of inputs are there to make us do that? Is it because we think, well, that doesn't quite fit. I think it's probably this pattern over here. I'm going to just rejig things a bit. I don't know. I mean, I remember very, very clearly at medical school sitting in a lecture theatre, and um, it was the first time that we basically had a real patient on the stage, and it was a teaching session. And one of the other students in my year was asked to come up on the stage and ask questions <coughs> of this patient who was a respiratory patient and try and figure out what, what it was that was wrong with him. Um, in a way that we could all learn from. And she, she was very good, this student. I mean, I think we were all just so relieved that it wasn't us. And as she asked this patient questions, I could see that she was, she was kind of going into other questions and that she, she knew where she was going. She, she had a sense of... And I remember sitting there and thinking, but how do you know to ask this and not that? And I've just got all these, none of it makes sense. I've got no idea what's wrong with him. And of course, experience, you know, sometimes experience really gives you the answer and then you just write the history to fit the answer. And sometimes you have the history and you don't have an answer and you just have to keep going back and back and back. You can be lazy and you can be not lazy, depending on how you feel and how hard it is. And but the premise then, the actual platform upon which the rest of our assessment is built, is soft ground, if, it's, if there's already... It is, although I think in this regard, I mean, I hope that um, Roger Kneebone out there will forgive me for saying this as the other surgeon in here that I know is a surgeon. I think one of the things that always appealed to me about surgery is really there isn't much difficult diagnosis to be done. I mean, there, are, there is a finite number of surgical diseases if, you're, if your questions and your diagnosis are not really, really clear and obvious, you send them to a physician, don't you? <coughs> and, you know, I, I kind of quite like that. So it, the story became something, I don't know, it wasn't a difficult thing, almost like a fairy tale in surgery. It's a, there's a se selected number of stories that you keep telling yourself that, you know, lead to this tumour or this blockage, or that it's very straightforward in mm. surgery. Mm. It's a frill, really, the conversation with the patient in yeah. surgery. yes. Terrible. Did I say that? We know you did. Well, we all know it, so we, we need to have it. We, know, we need to... Um, Sarah, you've, I mean, in Bodies of Light, you've extraordinarily got into, somehow, the mind of this young doctor um, in the 1800s? Yeah, 1870s. Who, in fact, one of the first women doctors. Yeah. And so that, having inhabited that mind, just to pick up on this point, I don't want to labour it necessarily for too long, but the idea of the history as a yarn, as a tale, mm. what's that parallel, having inhabited her mind with your yarn spinning as a novelist? Firstly, this is probably one of the scarier things I've done with this book, to talk to surgeons about a book in which I imagine what it might like, be like to be a surgeon. I have GCSE biology, and that's about as far as it goes. So. That's true of most surgeons. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really glad I seem to have got away with it. Um, I think, for me, I mean, the parallels in this book are more to do with visual art and medicine than to do with writing and medicine, because the writing is present anyway. You can mm. see the writing. But I think 
it's about it's about getting into other people's heads. Mm. And I've been thinking a lot this weekend. Sam and I had a bit of an argument on the phone about the relationships between literature and medicine. Mm. And I've been thinking more this weekend about what those might be. And I think partly it's to do with the, the way our professions both depend on being able to see the inside of someone else's head, in some cases literally, apparently. Mm. Um, and also being able to listen to their words but simultaneously read their body and hear what's not being said. Mm. And there was a moment writing this book <coughs> where I thought, oh, but, but this is it, but medicine and writing fiction are the same thing, which was obviously just one of those moments of revelation, which is nonsense. <laughs> but I think there might be something there about not just listening to what people say, but somehow finding ways of hearing what's not said, and then representing what's not said. I mean, it just it, it strikes me. So I went on to one of our wards the other day, and I <clears throat> was there for a while trying to establish which of the team on the ward was looking after a patient. And for a while, the conversation bounced back and forth. Because I said, well, who's looking after that man? And the answer came back, well, I, you can talk to me, but I, I saw him yesterday. And, um, or you know, can talk to all of us. We're all looking after him. Um, so, you know, I, did, I found myself, you know, sort of too long, five minutes later, saying, who's looking after him? And, you know, people were starting to worry about this psychotic oncologist on the ward asking this question. But it felt, actually, that unless there's some kind of ownership of that individual, which begins with, actually, a, tr a, a genuine telling of who they are, then actually making sensible, technical, and moral decisions becomes untenable. Um, so... so Although I hear what you're saying, Gabriel, about the, the, minim, the minimism of the history, perhaps in surgery, in fact, in all of medicine, that beginning, that naming process almost, as William was calling it earlier, is where it starts from, surely, doesn't it? It must do. Yes, it begins with a story. Yeah. But it's very subjective. I mean, sure. Yeah, and, and I, also, the first thing I'll say is the, the really reassuring thing at the beginning of this is that. Sam hasn't revealed any of his prejudices about surgeons, but um, the uh, the observation about the story, and I, I'm I'm an absolutely passionate believer that the story and the narrative is the way in, is the real genuine difficulty of interpreting that. And in, indeed, earlier on today, in one of the discussions that was going on, I turned to the person next to me and said why do we dictate the letters <coughs> from our clinics and why don't we give the patient the dictaphone to dictate the letter from our clinics because they might tell the story of what they've heard about what we said to them better than we interpreted and I think I mean, I'm not suggesting that that's a sensible thing to do but that discourse that leads to some sort of conclusion or that we draw conclusions from you know as well as I do, is very dynamic but incredibly difficult to get to the nubbin of. It may be easier in surgery. I'm not actually sure it is that much easier in surgery. It's maybe a very finite end. You take somebody's gallbladder out, you think you're doing the right thing, there were gallstones in it, and actually the end consequence for the patient isn't what they were anticipating, but they come back to clinic and say, thank you, doctor, I feel much better. The other thing that comes out loudly in both of the books to me is that actually that... that that, so that meeting point, so we, we accept fully that the, 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 you know, the, the patient story is arriving from a number of places. The doctor's um, childhood, growing up, 
their parental influences, all that has made them this dark and light being that you were um, declaring yesterday is present in those encounters and indeed the choices they make in terms of the profession but in terms of therefore also the clinical choices they're making. And both the protagonists in, uh, I, mean, I should just say because you know I'll, someone will grab me at the end of this and say why was it another thing about doctors, both of the protagonists in this book are um, doctors. Similarly they're both women. Um, so it's not all about women either. Um, can we talk a bit about what those what's happened to those characters in their lives? So particularly in Dirty Work, rather than Direct Red, but also in Bodies of Light, and so particularly the parents of Ali, and what shaped her. Um, my character Ali is the daughter of a, an artist, kind of loosely based on William Morris. I mean, he's not just a fictionalisation of William Morris, but he he uses both his daughters as artist models all the way through their childhood. So they grow up being looked at and being represented, but not really being heard. And their mother is a, a Victorian feminist who works particularly with prostitutes. And this is against the background of the Contagious Diseases Act. Um, I was about in academic mode to ask if everybody knows about the Contagious Diseases Act, but since I can't see you anywhere, I wouldn't know if you could. Um, the Contagious Diseases Act was in the 1860s and 70s, and it said that in the port towns, any woman found out alone after dusk could be subject to a forcible internal examination to check if she was carrying sexually transmitted disease. Um, the theory being that the British Navy was being undermined by STDs, so the solution to this was to imprison prostitutes in the port towns. Um, so this is in an era when women don't have the vote, and they can simply be taken into police stations, forcibly stripped and forcibly examined. And it was one of the catalysts for the Victorian suffrage movement because the view was that if women had had any political power at all, this situation could never have come about. So my character Ali is growing up against a background of her father's treatment of his daughters as aesthetic objects. I mean, he's also, he also quite likes them, but, but primarily he's interested in them as bodies, as models. And their mother's crusading zeal for suffrage reform and on behalf of Victorian prostitutes. So these are two <coughs> very different ways of looking at the female body, um, but both very problematic. And I realized much later when I was writing about the book, actually for Deborah Bowman, that Ali's becoming a doctor is a response to her having been a model. There's, you can make an equation between a model and a patient, particularly at that date when medical books were illustrated by artists rather than by photos. So as model and patient, you're silenced. It's your body that's of interest. Sometimes your words just get in the way. You know, really, you should just shut up and lie there. Even lie back and think of England. So becoming a doctor is a response to being an artist's daughter. It's a way of taking charge of the narrative mm. and being on the powerful side of the gaze, being mm. the one doing the looking. Mm. And the writing, I mean, the writing is mine, which is why I don't need to be a doctor or an artist for these, these purposes. But it's that equivalence that I was interested in. So, so as trying to glean a form of glean control. Yes. Over the world. No, I think in individual interactions. To, right. I mean, no, no human interaction is equal. Somebody yeah. always has more power than somebody else. And for a Victorian woman, you're very rarely the one who has the power. Mm. And as a daughter, you're very rarely the one mm. who has the power. Mm. So, for Ali, becoming a doctor is a way of 
being the one with the power mm. in, in most, most of her interactions. So not necessarily malign, but nonetheless no. asserting power. Yes, yeah. and not malign. I mean, that's no. the other interesting thing Quite. about it, that yeah. it's, it, it should be, and usually is, a benign form of power, but the power is nonetheless fundamental. And, and interestingly, to me anyway, this so Nancy, in Dirty Work, um, you know, a, a number of key memories, one of um, being in a pub as a child mm. and um, being subjected to sexual abuse and, and a key memory of um, um, wetting herself whilst she's you know, holding this man's penis and that sort of pervades, that's a strong memory, it's an early memory declared in the book. And then also in a, in a, in, in a group of three girls, so inevitable power struggles there, mm. the stronger of the girls mm. is found, found to be in a position of vulnerability which Nancy can then help in. Mm. And, and she feels that power. I don't know if you've read Cat's Eye by Margaret. Yes. At that point where the power is transferred between mm. them and she, you know, suddenly... Yeah, uh, exactly. I mean, Nancy, Nancy also um, is uh, a difficult character, like the character in Sarah's book, and she, um, she's very keen to get power, and she, she doesn't just want to be a sort of sweet, nice woman doctor. She wants to go into the operating theatre and do what men do. And her desire, her, her hubris to some extent, kind of gets her into this territory almost by accident where she suddenly finds that she's performed a termination without really considering whether she wants to be someone who has performed a termination. And she realises then that she, through her kind of, her drive and her machismo, has put herself into a position that she's never ever going to be able to come back from. And her vulnerability and her emotions catch up with her and she really is just fighting all the time between trying to sort of cast off her vulnerability in the part of her which is perhaps the best part of her which is questioning what she's doing. Huh. She just wants to believe she's doing the right thing but the other voice in her head won't let her believe that. But a, a bit as we were talking yesterday, um, I, I felt very strongly writing this book, I didn't want to write a good abortionist. I wanted to write uh, an abortion provider who's not necessarily a likable character. And I, I really, I'm very interested, not just as a doctor, but as a woman doctor in how we can use what's not good about us, what's not strong about us, what's not knowledgeable about us, to somehow improve the way that we are with our patients. And maybe that is <coughs> kind of a bit desperate because... Well, I, I mean, I just, I, I just want to kind of stick with this idea of the power for a bit. I mean, it, it may be a bit trite, the whole kind of wounded healer thing and what makes people want to go into medicine or nursing or any kind of health profession. But if in these two characters, it feels as though there's something quite important here about these two characters at some level being driven, not in a malign way, but to be powerful in some fashion. Mm. Um, and, w and what that does, if it's in their blood, what that, what that means for them as um, doctors or nurses. Do you, I mean, is that something you recognize in health professionals, a need to, to it, feeling empowered against the fragility and the weathering of life around us and other people? I, I think in my case, it is more egotistical than mm. that. Mm. I think I, I really... You personally? Personally, yeah. 
um, have found that surgery is the only place in my life where I can be the asshole that I am. Mm. And I'm actually nicer than most of the other ones. <laughs> you know, I mean, quite seriously, I feel like at home, my lovely dear husband is always kind of taking me to one side and just saying, it's a bit harsh, love, you know, maybe just take a step back or stop, you know, they call me the Ayatollah Westoni in our house because I'm just always kind of hammering everyone. And I know that I do it and I try and stop myself and I can't. But when I go into into theatre and I put my scrubs on and I'm pacing up and down and it, it, I, no one ever says to me, stop walking so fast, stop being so early. Is that because they're terrified of you? No, no, no. I'm, I'm like the pussycat in mm. this. Uh, really, mm. for a surgeon. Mm. Which sad. means, that's me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think everyone saw that look and knows exactly. <laughs> Sean, do you come, come in on this and doctors and power? And well, I, I mean, there is definitely a power trip for all doctors. I'm not totally convinced it's different and, and maybe you weren't saying this for women compared to men I, I don't know I mean, think certainly in bodies of light there's an element of women finding their medical voice at last and indeed a lot of what you read in the book makes you very proud of the NHS because the time it's set in was remote from that and a lot of the a lot of the problems in in healthcare then are addressed by the introduction of the NHS but there again Actually, many of the things in the book you can still hear echoes of, some quite strong within the current NHS. But the power trip still exists. There's a, an amazing book in Bodies of Light, a bit in Bodies of Light, about this surgeon, I presume the consultant or certainly the senior surgeon, refusing to get out of bed to go and see the pauper yes. patient. Mm. But actually, if it was a private patient, it would definitely be worth getting up to see. And although some of that's gone out of the NHS, in reality, actually, it still exists. Sure so the power trip actually, yeah. is still there yeah. for males as much as it is for females. The, the dynamic has changed. In our hospital, 80% of our in junior intake is, is female. What percentage of the consultants? That's it. Uh, well, it depends which specialty. Mm. In our specialty, it's 50%. It's I think it's about 60% of our consultants are, are female now, and that's changing fairly rapidly. Yeah. 13% um, in surgery. Yeah. Yes, in surgery, it will be very different from that. Mm. And I, that may be the nature of the individuals, mm. or it may be the, the, um, the difficulty fault of the system, I'd be the first to admit, but the difficulty of mixing surgery with family life and bringing up families, I honestly don't We're know. We're going to come on to men and women, actually. Uh, I'm kind of holding my breath for that bit. <laughs> can we, I just wondered if we could have a couple of readings, uh, uh, anything that speaks to that or doesn't matter. Yeah, um, um, I'm going to read a bit. Um, this is from, my character is 17 now, um, so finishing school, kind of work at that final push through the, through the last year of school. And she's gone away from Manchester where, where she lives for a few days uh, with her father, Alfred, and her father's friend, Aubrey, who is a slightly complicated character, and her sister, May. Um, each chapter begins with a picture, with a description of a picture, and I'm going to read that to you as well. The picture's called Naiads Under the Willow. Still fascinated by sunlight and foliage, he has painted the shadows of a weeping willow in the river, the wavering of running water interwoven with the movement of leaves in air and of light through leaves. 
water and light flow left to right without framing, teasing the viewer with what is out of sight downstream. The river runs over stones, silted and reflecting their earth colours in the beer bottle translucence of the water. Reeds strain in the margins, combed by the current and bowed like wheat in the wind. Fronds of willow trail idle fingers on the surface, each carving a small wake, and there is a suspicion of fish under the darker branches. The naiads are almost an afterthought, two barefoot girls on the riverbank, right at the edge of the painting. Their loose white garments are dishevelled, slipping off the shoulder of the taller girl and curtled up to show the calves of the smaller as she sits in the grass with her knees drawn up, her head turned away towards the water so the sun fingers her tumbling hair. The older one sits with her feet tucked under her, peeping from beneath the slim thighs outlined by a single layer of cloth. She's looking down into the water too, braced by one bare arm whose muscles continue through the exposed shoulder and into her neck. The hair on her nape is damp, curling, and we can see her spine and her shoulder blades like wings above the sagging dress. Green, brown, gold flow across the campus, starred by the white of their dresses and the marsh flags on the other side of the river. And it's okay to go on a bit. I'm mm. just going, then we move into being with Ali. Mm. She should have stayed at home with Mama. The hospital there has only a paved yard for the children to take the air. There is little wind, even here, and from the hill behind the village, she can see by the dirty brown fog lying over it where the city lies, a pastel smudge on a watercolour landscape. There are thousands of children under that smudge whose lives could be saved by the clean spring water in the stone jug beside the wicker hamper, and by the hay-scented air in Ali's lungs and the clear river where May is paddling, dipping the hem of her dress as she tries to catch fish in her fingers. Many of the women in the home have never seen a forest, wouldn't recognise the chamomile smile of sun-baked grass, or the darkness of the secret folded places of marsh flags. Mama is with those women, teaching them and praying with them in the dust and the thick smell of drains and the absence of drains in midsummer. Ali turns back to her book. Here at least is a promise she can keep. Troy burns. Aeneas loses Creusa and returns to search a city where blood lies in congealing pools and the pleas of the dying whisper in the walls. Aubrey rolls up his trousers and joins May in the water catching her when she steps on a rolling stone and once almost catching a fish. May says she's cold, and they climb out and lie together in the sun on the bank. Aubrey tells her a story about a time he and Papa tried to row on a river in France. May picks up the needlework she left beside the picnic basket and begins to stitch again, filling the outlines of poppies with red silk. It must be the slowest possible mode of representation. Would Papa persist in painting if each eighth of an inch took him? Ali counts as May's hands glide, 15 seconds. Would Aubrey? Aeneas Stateless leads his son and his father away from Troy into the strange haunted spaces beyond the city walls. Providence their guide, she thinks, though Troy was no Eden. There are some ways in which the warring classical gods make more sense than the Christian one. It is very often hard to have faith that there is justice in life and plain that much suffering is undeserved. How much easier to believe in gods who bicker, throw thunderbolts in fits of temper, and betray, betray their protégés after listening to others' lies. How much easier to believe that sometimes our gods desert us. As indeed Christ himself for a moment suspected, why hast thou forsaken me? She prays, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. The problem of suffering, of why the good die young, is only a test of faith, a test passed by Mama and Mrs. Butler and countless other good workers in the world. It's time for lunch, Al.
<laughs> so she's fed this, these, these dreams from her father, the artistic dream from her father, her mother's religious convictions, and then this impoverished society. Yes. So she's this kind of Keatsian figure, to me, anyway, except what she was... You? Well, I suppose Keats was, and Tom will correct me on this inevitably, but moved as much by the political plight of, 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 the, of the, the underclasses that he saw in front of him, mm. and poetry, so, so the art and social justice for him, as far as I could see, crystallised in yeah. what was medicine. Yes. Um, so so that, that's yes. a reasonable parallel? I don't... I mean, the social justice thing is actually Ali's mother's, and that's one of the burdens that she's carrying from her mother. It's a lack of permission to enjoy anything or to do anything that's not constantly mindful mm. of suffering. I mean, she's deprived of the... Uh, she's never given the ability to play or to celebrate or to be happy without a voice at the back of her mind saying, but there are people in the world who are suffering. Right. How can you enjoy anything while there is this terrible suffering in yeah, the world? Okay. And that disables her. And, and she doesn't completely push against it though does she it's no. there yes mm -hmm. because she's offered it as a kind of masochistic means of fulfillment and part of the problem for Ali which I mean we were just talking about the percentage of surgeons that are women in my English department we have 18 professors of whom 16 are male you know, th these issues have not gone away in any aspect of the public sector part of the problem for Ali is that the the only way to take power is to destroy herself and she comes very close to doing both of those things. And I, I honestly believe that that is still an issue for women in most aspects of professional life. Well, I think we should talk about this, um, probably before we go on. <laughs> oh, because I want to, but I haven't got the lexicon for it, but I think we have to somehow out this in conversation. What, there's a whole branch of ethics called feminist, you know, feminine or feminist ethics. Um, what that, and it, this, this comes up all the time, most typically, I suppose, most cartoonishly in the whole nurse-doctor divide, which is seen anyway, even if it isn't true on the ground, as a male-female divide. What, are there different subjectivities? If we're saying there's a subjectiveness to all of our encounters with patients, are men and women bringing different eyes and ears to that encounter and hearts to that encounter? <laughs> Only as a result of experience, if so. Elaborate. That men and women are socialised and rewarded for behaving in different ways. And yes, that probably means that there are differences. I mean, one of the big issues for the first generation of female doctors was that there were both conservative and radical arguments for their existence. And this is why doctors, women can be doctors years and years before they can be lawyers. Because the conservative argument for the existence of women doctors is that you don't want some strange man looking at your wife when she hasn't got her clothes on. Right. So from that point of view, let's have women doctors, and then women can look at each other when they haven't got their clothes on, and nobody has to subject his wife's modesty to anybody else's gaze. I mean, it's all about who gets to look at whom in what state. Mm. So again, back to artists and mm. who's allowed to look at bodies. Right. Right. The radical argument is the one that's much more familiar to us now, that women are equal in capacity and therefore should be equal in opportunity. <coughs> but that radical argument follows. Um, the radical argument on its own would not have got women into medicine. It was the conservative mm. argument that got women into medicine. So that gives you two ways of being a woman doctor, mm. really, at the beginning. Mm. You can either specialise in obstetrics and only treat women, which a lot of the first generation of female doctors did, mm. in which case the whole thing becomes a feminine as well as a feminist discourse. 
or you can try to insist that you are equal as a doctor and therefore have a right to equal pay, which took a very long time to be accepted, and you, sh you should be treating men. And it was only really World War I that swung that one. I mean, mm. once you've got an awful lot of men who need treating and not so many men who can treat them, but actually a growing number of women who can, mm. then pragmatically things begin to shift. But it, it was the pragmatic stuff that did that one. But you made a comment, and that's fascinating, you made a comment on when I asked about how, whether we bring different eyes, ears, and hearts to it, something you said about how we're rewarded. Did you say something about Socialised and rewarded yeah. for behaving differently. What about the reward, the reward bit of it? Well, you rarely hear a man pay. pay. Um, yeah. You rarely hear a man called bossy. I mean, yeah. Gabriel, this goes back to what you're saying about <laughs> being allowed to be an asshole when you're in your scrubs. Mm. Um, you need a mask to do that, mm. literally. Mm. So, Gabriel, can you pick up on that? I'm, so I'm just going to go back a bit because I just to pick up on Ali's reading. Yeah. Um, I think that one of the things that's so interesting about Ali is that her sense of unworthiness which is hammered into her mm. by her mother is what becomes the fundamental building blocks of her worthiness yes. as a doctor and when I started writing as a doctor and I obviously wanted to see what else was out there and was reading a lot of stuff like Atul Gawande, mm. early Atul Gawande mm. where he was more interested in kind of telling the world about mm. his kind of blood splashing macho heroism. And there was a lot of that kind of writing out there mm. about 10 years ago by men and about how kind of cool what they were doing was. And I remember thinking, um, not only did I not find it that interesting, but I, I also thought that's just so the opposite of how I feel. Mm. And I do think that as a doctor, perhaps because I came from an English literature background and therefore I've always felt like an imposter in medicine, I've always felt to some degree that I'm cheating people, that I must not know as much mm. as everyone else. Mm. Um, I have never shaken that, that sense of inferiority mm. off. That for me, the only way that I can sort of be hopeful as a doctor about the possibility of actually providing any good care at all is to think, well, maybe if I'm aware that I don't know very much, that is a good place to start knowing things. Mm. Maybe if I know that I find my patients boring, that is a, a way to start finding them interesting. Maybe if I know that I'm afraid, that is a way to start being confident. And again, tying in with what has just been said up here about who gets to look at what, and, and generally it's been always sort of women lying passively under the male gaze. I also think, and I'm about to read a little bit about this now, that um, maybe if we want to be right for our patients, mm. which is the subject of this panel, we need to kind of really get in touch with what is wrong mm. about us as doctors. And um, I've just got a little passage Before here. Before you do that, mm. is that, do you think that is a particularly female difficulty in terms of, the, of you know, fe feeling the uncertainties and the insecurities in comparison to one's colleagues, be they male or female? Or do you think it's a shared challenge that is either, um, you know, owned more, stated more by one sex or another, or indeed recognised differently between individuals? I think there is no question that in my experience of surgery that men are more confident um, 
when they're learning how to operate than women are. Dangerously so? Uh, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes the lack of confidence that a woman can have can be dangerous too. Yeah, okay. So I do think in the learning stages of surgery that you do tend to see women doubting their capacity and men really plunging in beyond their capacity. And I think that's okay because I think the system and the, the people who are in charge are aware enough of that, mm. that I certainly, as a woman, I had a lot of my consultants saying, you know, in you know, typical surgical kind of language, stop being such a pussy and mm. all that kind of thing. And actually that was good to hear and people sometimes just walking out on me and saying, I'm just sick of watching you just be so pathetic, I'm leaving. Um, and, and those self-same consultants were probably also saying to some of the young men, do you actually know what artery that is you're about to cut? You know, so I, I think as long as there's the safety gauge there on both sides, that's okay. This piece I'm about to read is, um, is actually from my first book, and it really is just an example of how, you know, we are not immune as doctors from the feelings that we all have of repulsion, mm -hmm. lust, and in this case, just embarrassment. And this was a situation I was, you know, much, much younger than I am now, and, and therefore it was more embarrassing, or I was called to the bedside of a patient who had had a catheter put in. He was an orthopedic patient, and in order to put the catheter in, his foreskin had been retracted, and then whoever had put the catheter in had forgotten to put his foreskin back. And he had developed this horrible, horrible condition called paraphimosis, where the penis really just swells up and has this tourniquet. You feel like I'm bullying you now, don't you? Because I'm just talking to you about this painful penis no. experience. Of <laughs> exercising my power. Where did you. that come from? <laughs> Let's have the lights up. <laughs> we need to have this conversation. Um, no, on, carry on. Anyway, so this, this is me, um, kind of age, I don't know, 28 or something, just embarrassed, in the middle of the night on call. It was the middle of the night when I arrived on the orthopaedic ward and I was immediately able to make out a low groaning separate from the ward's collective groan. Steve, the chief nurse, led me to Mr. Ashton's bed, drew the curtain around me and the patient and with an encouraging wink left us to it. Leg and cast on a pillow, Mr. Ashton's head was thrown back in disquiet. His swollen, discoloured penis lay like a dark lighthouse against the horizon of the sheet's edge. He was a young man. We were contemporaries. I tried to chase from my mind the idea that in other circumstances I might have met him at a party. I found myself perversely grateful that his pain left no room for embarrassment between us. He looked wildly at me and whimpered a little. I began to talk to him in a quiet voice, not because it was nighttime, but because I wanted him to look at me and think me quiet and therefore gentle since what I began to explain to him was that I was going to put his sore penis into my hand and squeeze it. As soon as I said squeeze, I added very, very gently. But what I didn't detail was that I would then start to squeeze it harder and harder until I had chased all that pulled blood back up more proximally so I could get the foreskin noose loose and put things back where they belonged. I took his next whimper for assent and like someone on slow spool, finger by finger, enclosed as much of the head of his penis as I could in my hand. It felt as if the two of us were hardly touching. 
Mr. Ashton drew breath at this point, his worst fears of vengeful, woman, vengeful womanhood perhaps allayed. Then gradually I began to apply more pressure, first just enough for the small muscles of my hand to relax their still semi-extended position, then more. In a curious inversion of other similar contacts, I felt rewarded as the contents of my grip began to shrink. <laughs> I carried on applying pressure bit by bit. After about five minutes, I was clenching Mr. Ashton's penis with all my might. As all the remaining trapped blood migrated northwards to the end of his organ, the young man's discomfort eased, and what had previously looked like agony gave way now to nude shame. In the artificial dusk of the ward, we were suddenly just two young strangers, one holding the other's penis. <laughs> Sean, I just wondered if you could. Pick up <laughs> I just wondered if you could pick up on this male-female <laughs> interface, yeah. and um, maybe particularly, actually, by beginning to think about whether, in fact, there's a difference. If there is a difference on this side of that interface, what's happening in how we encounter male and female patients? Are we doing that differently? Because, in fact, that must be as true. In fact, lots of nods here. That must be as true in, in our encounters with patients. So I'll come, I might try and come back to okay. the patient's bit. So yeah. the, the observation, firstly, is of nonverbal communication, which is that at that point of vulnerability that you and I felt that, that um, Gabrielle articulated, you and I both uncrossed our legs. So I thought... I crossed mine. No, you uncrossed yours and then crossed them again. Okay. However, um, I, so the personal view about the sense of inferiority that you spoke of, which mm. is, I think the inferiority is, is my own belief, exist for men as much as they do for women in medicine, whether they're doctors or others. And my inferiority sits around the fact that the vast majority of people I trained with came from private schools and I didn't, and my sense of lack of knowledge and lack of expertise and lack of uh, skill uh, did and still remains with me to this day. Um, so the, the birth of that inferiority is different for different individuals, but as a, as a medical director in the trust, I have as many proportionately, perhaps I should say, men sitting in front of me it, declaring their sense of inferiority, their sense of concern about their ability to do their job, as I do women. So I'm not sure there's a true difference there. It may well be true in surgery that the cavalier nature of the male is much more expressed than the female. So I suppose then just reflecting or taking that a little bit further, and, and more speaking personally than, than more generally, I'd struggle, but I, don't, I never observe myself in consultation, so I don't know whether this is true. I str struggle to know whether there's a difference in terms of how I approach a consultation with a female as opposed to a male, or whether the conclusions that I incorrectly or correctly draw from that consultation are different. But the dynamic must be different, mustn't it? Inevitably, just, just by the very nature of... of the, the different sexes, so it, it may be. I mean, I don't get any more complaints from yeah. 
women than I do from men or vice versa. But it, well, you don't get any complaints. Oh, trust me, I do. Um, Sarah, <laughs> did you want to pick up? Yeah, I just kind of feel an urgent need to do the arts and humanities bit here. Mm. We're confusing sex and gender mm. here. Um, so gender is social and gender is about the social roles that we're invited or allowed to inhabit and mm. sex is biological. So when we say that male doctors do this, that and the other mm. thing, it's not an accusation of all men. Mm. What we're saying is that there are ways of being that are more readily available to men or mm. to doctors or to you know, upper class people mm. than are available to people who are on the other ends of those binaries. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I'm aware that it's always very difficult to talk about these things without putting in lots of caveats. So, you some of my best friends are men, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> my husband's a good person. No, I think we should it's get the habit, let's, yeah, yeah. about it. <laughs> <laughs> what we're saying, I think, is that there are ways in which men are allowed to behave that are very difficult for women to behave, and vice versa, which is not to say that individual men and women are incapable of or unwilling to behave in those ways, it's easier for a woman to say, I'm worried, I don't know what I'm doing here, can somebody help me, without mm. any doubt. Mm. And it's easier for a man to say, look, can you just back off, I know exactly what I'm doing and stop interfering. <laughs> Which is not to say that we don't ever say the opposite things, no, no, no. but it's, we're socially permitted to say those things, and that's about gender. And I definitely think, you know, following on from that, absolutely, that if it's assumed that, um, that we, we all want to be good and we want to be seen as good, then... I think it's definitely very tricky for women to grab any kind of power and be good. Mm. And that's what surgery right. lets you that's do. And really, in, in my experience... Um, because the grabbing of the power as the woman is implicitly bad, as opposed to the, the claiming of the power yes. by a man is more gender-aligned. Yes. The well, there's, that, there's that, you know, that actually dreadful book, by Sheryl Sandberg called, called Lean In, which I made myself read. I mean, it, she's mm. so insufferable, that woman. She's a <laughs> very, very, very rich CEO. Take her off our just, Twitter feed, wherever oh, she is. Oh, God. Yeah. She just tells women to lean into their work, and you think, well, if someone was paying me five million a year, I might be happier to lean in. But she does have lots of research in that book, some of which is very interesting. And one of the things that she says there is that in um, surveys of how liked women are, both by men and women, mm. women in positions of authority and power are basically hated. Mm. And um, it may be true that, that people might hate women surgeons who are not surgeons, but I really do think that there's, there is a lovely, lovely freedom within surgery, within the culture of surgery, once you're in there, and it may be rather blokey, and that may be the downside of it. Mm. But where, where you are a good guy, of course, a guy, but you're a, good, you're a good guy, and the more, the harder you work, the more full-on you are, the more of a good guy mm. you are. And that really is the only place in, in my life where I've ever experienced that. And, and that must be what it's like to be a man the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Well, for some, <laughs> for some men who are also privileged by the binaries. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, can you tell us a bit <laughs> about the, the inf I suppose, the infancy here of women in medicine and what was happening, and maybe yeah. read to us something that yeah, speaks sure. to that. Thank you. Um, it starts, I suppose, with the professionalisation of medicine in the second half of the nineteenth century. Because before doctors are being, before there's an official way of becoming a doctor, um, actually there were women healers. I mean, in you know, 
without constructing a glorious olden days, um, for most of the medieval and renaissance period, women were the healers predominantly. And as medicine is professionalized through the 18th and 19th centuries, it's fenced off for men um, because that's, that's seen as being natural or appropriate or because it's becoming more scientific and we all know men are the ones who do science. And there's a tension around that in the late 19th century, um, partly because of the Contagious Diseases Act, but also interestingly because of the beginning of surgery. Um, which is a use of technology to get inside the body. And those forced gynecological examinations that I was talking about use a speculum to get inside the body. So you have a, a moment in the 1860s, 1870s, where instruments are being used to open up people's bodies and look inside them. And almost exclusively, the people wielding the instruments are men, and the people whose bodies are being looked inside are women. And this is also when you're getting the, the rise of women's suffrage and an insistence on, on equality. And the first woman to qualify as a doctor was Elizabeth Blackwell, but she did that through a loophole in this legislation. The Scottish Apothecaries College had failed to word their charter in such a way as to exclude women categorically. So she used that, but they then closed the loophole. And the next women to try were called the Edinburgh Seven. Um, I was about to say, it's a shame we don't know their names, but I can't remember their names, so I can't make the great statement I was going to about that. They were seven women who were allowed to matriculate at Edinburgh University to study medicine, but told from the beginning that they may or may not be allowed to graduate. And they were the only women at Edinburgh University at that time. And the level of hatred directed at them from the male medical students and professors is quite astonishing. I mean, they, they were assaulted in the streets, they had things thrown at them, they were sworn at. And the argument was always that only an unnatural, unsexed woman would want to see these scenes of carnage and violence which were presumed to be going on in operating theatres. Uh, but of course, there'd been female nurses there all along. So it wasn't actually about who's allowed to look, it's about who's allowed to get paid. And to intervene in And some to way. intervene. Yeah. Who's allowed to get paid and who's allowed to have power? Yeah. Um, and in the end, they weren't allowed to graduate. They spent eight years studying. They had to buy in a lot of their own tuition separately because a lot of the tutors wouldn't teach women. Um, and then right at the end, although most of them came top in most of the exams, they were not allowed to graduate. So they scattered. Some of them went to Ireland where women could qualify. Some went to France. A lot went to America where there were women's medical schools. But they were, they were ultimately defeated in Britain. And, and in um, um, the book, um, Gabriel, if, let's say, Nancy... So we talked yesterday about you know, the fact of her being an abortion provider um, and the rightness or wrongness of that, mm. for both for her and those around her. I mean, two questions around that. One. Is that, you know, she's asked the question, isn't she, of the panel from the GMC talking to her, what kind of person becomes an abortion provider? Mm. Um, and really, in a sense, later on in the book, there's a, there's a description, a very detailed description at the end of the book around the actual um, process um, of, of the abortion operation, but also earlier on where she's evacuating fecal contents, doing a manual evacuation of fecal contents. And on both of those, her, she frames her duty very clearly to do something, I think, cleanly and efficiently comes up on both of those. Mm. Um, as in, my duty here is to do this well, whatever 
the wider context yeah. of the event is. And I just wonder, this came up a lot last night in our debate about choice. In a sense, you know, when, when we ask what kind of person becomes an abortion provider, we're actually asking what are the goals of medicine there? Why, is that not a legitimate goal of medicine? Mm. And if not, why not? I, th I think it is an essential, incredibly difficult thing that's related to the business of surgery and by extension gynecology terminations. Um, it's something we all find very difficult to make our peace with. We want our doctors to be the kind of doctors who come to medicine unboxed. We want them to be civilized and to read and listen to music and think and, and so forth. And yet, to do surgery, at some level, you have to have a brutal, steely core. There has to be some way in which you take off that civilized person, you take that suit off, and you connect with something else. And if you can't do that, you can't do surgery. So I think that surgery does really, really bring into relief the, the difficulty that we have as patients and future patients with what we want our doctors to be. Because how, how much can you expect a surgeon, and I'm not talking the kind of small surgery I do, but big surgery, kind of trauma surgery, cardiac surgery, that sort of thing, how much can a person who's able to do that be expected also to emote in a normal way? Mm. I don't know, I think it's a very, very difficult one. And some of that, when we're talking here about morality as well, about you know, not just emote, but you know, doing the right thing, the, 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 the problem we have, one of the things we haven't talked, we talked about men and women, we haven't talked about health professionals and you know, in a sense, what you're describing men as doing to women health professionals are doing to managers, arguably. In what sense? Well, you know, there's a ready vilification or um, caricaturing of those individuals. Of as managers? Well, perhaps. They're villains. Well, so there. Um, we have the, one of these villains on stage. No. because So there's, in a sense, you, there's an issue here about duties and goals and all the rest of it um, and, and the rights and wrongs of that patient in front of us. But then similarly, we've got to make judgments here about wider what we do's and don't do's. And how does that how does that separation work? The vilification of the managers or indeed the politicians that feed into this right wrong. So I, I think the, the, the comparison with Nancy is a really interesting one in that I, I don't know because I've got no science to base this statement, but the quantum of good that Nancy does in her daily work is probably greater than the oncologist or the beloved physician or whoever in the sense that she's providing <coughs> a more important service to a critical um, person or person in a critical moment in their life um, and making her case for her recognition within her um, area within medicine should be really easy but self-evidently in terms of how she's demonstrated in the book and I suspect that relays some of the prejudices that are widely out there mm. it's very difficult to love her yes now I think I just wonder where, why that is true for managers, whatever they are, because you could argue that uh, and there are bad managers, there are bad doctors, but that the manager who is pushing hard to do the job that they're supposed to do um, could well be argued 
is providing a quantum of good that is just as equivalent to that of a doctor or a nurse or the palliative care nurse or the porter who's pushing a patient around the hospital, and yet they are an easy target. And somehow or another, we've still failed within the National Health Service, certainly, to join those two up. Because we heard yesterday a bit about we don't need to get better as doctors necessarily at putting all our time into this. We just need to get better at working together. And that was more about nurses and doctors working together and improving communication and things. But it's probably true across a much broader church. And I, I think it's quite dangerous personally to just choose a potentially vulnerable target because I hear vulnerable it all the time. target or easy target. Well, easy, sorry, an easy target in the, in the sense that I hear it all the time. The problem is, I would be the perfect doctor if it wasn't for or nurse if it wasn't for the trust, which is coded speak for mm. the management. Mm. But I do think, Sean. I mean, I think in at least in the eyes and the hearts of doctors and nurses, I do think there is a big difference between a manager who is someone who's been a doctor or nurse and a manager who's shipped in from Tesco and really doesn't understand the nature of what would you know what we're being asked to do as healthcare professionals i do think there is a big difference in those things and i mean i know i mean it, it, I, I appreciate and one mustn't be completely flip about it that that managers are an easy target but but really i mean i have to say in my relations with them over the years i just haven't found a single one that has, has a what? kind of it, that is humane or un actually understands anything about the nature of the job that doctors and nurses are trying to do. So when you say humane, you mean they're not driven towards a suitable or a set of goals that you would recognise as valid? Yes. Yeah, in medicine or surgery? Yes. Sarah, you probably haven't got much to say about this. I'm bit. making comparisons with universities. No, we'll go then, go on. Um, oh, only that I think there are... The issues of right and wrong are particularly acute in medicine, but at the moment, for example, I'm admissions tutor for my department, mm. and I have been instructed by what we also call managers, mm. um, the time to admit nobody who doesn't have three A's, regardless of extenuating circumstances, regardless of which school they've been to, regardless of whether they've spent the last two years in hospital, mm. three A's is our benchmark. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's right. Mm but I'm probably going to do it because it's not the major or most interesting part of my job and it will be easier for me mm. if I just get on with it and do what I'm told and it will leave me more time for teaching students, which is what I'm actually interested in doing. So, I mean, nobody's life or death hangs by that. So there's a failure to see the moral complexities. Yes. Well, that one's not even particularly complex, seems mm. to me. Mm. I mean... <laughs> yeah. Morality. <laughs> yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But I think... So, this is unfair, but... We could blame the managers for that inability, and it may be because they come from Tesco's, or it may be because they used to be doctors and then became managers, or nurses and then became managers, or it might be in the same way we keep getting our communication with our patients wrong, and we end up producing an re end result for our patients that isn't what they were expecting. It might be as, a, as healthcare workers, so doctors, nurses, physios, dieticians, or whoever, we've failed to help the managers understand that. And because I think that's part of our responsibility. Some of my colleagues said to me not long ago, why are you trying to train a whole load of doctors to be managers? And I couldn't think of anything worse to do because doctors are probably best spending the rest of their life predominantly providing the skills they've been 
trained for, mm. but we need to work with people who have skills in management to ensure that they're striving for the same outcome that you and I and everybody else is. So, we first and foremost, I think as a profession, and I mean that much broader than just doctors, we need to look in the mirror and ask ourselves, why are we getting that result? Um, we actually, we're just getting, we're warming up here. We could go for another, we've just got to the foothills of a, what will end up being a challenging conversation about men, women, doctors and managers, and we'll carry it on in the pub later, but actually, men, women, doctors and managers, can we have the house lights up, please? Men, women, doctors and managers, and the right thing to do. And while we're at it, actually, also, we didn't cover this, this issue of the power differential between health professionals and patients and the idea that, that in fact it is a collaborative, an equitable collaborative, that's the wrong word, uh, as against there being an inevitable hierarchy of power. Go. Oh, right. <laughs> we need another 16 microphones. We, okay, everyone, anyone, everyone. Will you bring that back to us next year then? Uh, next. Yep. Um, I'm a junior doctor and we've talked a lot about power imbalances between men and women, professionals and patients. And I just wonder how you feel about the power between junior members of staff and senior members of staff. Right. When we were talking before about really listening to patients, and I think sometimes juniors listen to patients in a different way from how seniors do. And there's three of you sat up there who are, who are senior doctors. And do you really take the time to listen to what your juniors are telling you? Well, well I, I don't, because the junior's always wrong. <laughs> Gabriel? I think, uh, I think what you say is, um, is really, really interesting. And I don't know from your point of view how much that has changed in the last 10 years, but I absolutely remember being a junior doctor and um, finding that hierarchy quite difficult at times. Um, I think that you guys often are the ones that listen best to patients, and, and also I think that patients very often feel that they're able to tell things to junior doctors that they, for some reason, to do with sort of structures and hierarchy, they're, they're perhaps afraid to, to tell to senior doctors. So I think that relationship between the patient and the first rung of doctors that, that cares for them is, is a very precious one. And um, I, you know, really, I really appreciate what you're saying. I'm going to move through questions quite quickly now. So at the top, thank you. Um, just a first um, point. I'm an obstetrician, so I'm not sure how many women went into obs and gynae early on because I think it was still very male-dominated because it's a surgical specialty. Um, and then my second point is just in terms of what Gabrielle was saying about um, the, partly the discussion yesterday about the interface that we allow to be seen of ourselves and how that's constantly changing in interactions. And the difficulty of knowing where your boundary stops and the patient's 
begins. Uh, I, I do carry out uh, terminations in late pregnancy, so foetuscides where we put an injection into the baby's heart and stop the heart in that moment. And of course, it's difficult to navigate that uh, because it's such a huge event, and it's the, an event that's happening at the end of my needle. Um, but I hope that the counseling beforehand has led to a position where it's about the patient and not about me, even as I'm hopefully empathizing with what they're going through. And that after I've carried out that procedure that I can again empathize with the huge event that's just taken place. And it's important if I'm gonna navigate those boundaries and flip between them, that I understand um, what my emotions are in that as well, which again goes back to what you said, Gabrielle, about if you understand where you are and the kind of depths of where you are, then you can perhaps come to see where you need to kind of meet what is required. Thank you. Are there any hands up that belong to nurses or any, brilliant. Can we have that one, please? Because we haven't talked about that frontier. So I'm running thank out of you. I wanted frontiers. to pick up on the that relationship between doctors and nurses, but actually all healthcare professionals, mm. and open it up, and talk about collective leadership. And also, it is very easy, it, you know, management is an easy target, or the wrong culture is an easy what target. What does collective leadership, what do you mean by that? So collective leadership is really where everybody within the organization takes on responsibility for their leadership skills and capacities, and works together, so collaborates, so it's not just the medical division, the nursing division, having a medical strategy, a nursing strategy, it's pulling that together. So it is all aligned. And hopefully, you know, within a, a shifting culture, organizational culture as well, that'll happen more, more openly. And you're a, relative, you're, you're a senior nurse at the Marsden, but your experiences across the trajectory of your career then, at that doctor-nurse um, engagement, would you comment on, the, on that? So I think nurses generally are more shy or less openly avert to seeking out their opportunities, and I think that's a shame. But it is especially about going out for those and working together, collaborating. Well, do the other so nurses in the audience agree you're more shy? I don't know whether those hands down mean that you are <laughs> or... <laughs> okay, there's someone over here. Thank you. Um, I'm actually not a nurse, but I'm a psychologist. Um, and I think that uh, I'm, I'm delighted to discover this medicine un unboxed. I didn't know about it. And I, I feel a bit as though it's an underground movement. Um, because uh, certainly when, when a, a, I, I work in health, so, so with, with patients with, with physical illness, um, and if I sit in, a, in a, 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 an MDT, um, then the voice of psychology I would have uh, it doesn't have the same power obviously as the voice a, of as the voice of um, the, the the medical the doctor the doctor and the same yeah. does it have the same weight as the voice of a nurse or even less no 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 it's it's a different it's a voice as it were from the wings Parallel. Okay. and uh, so when you talk about narrative and so on it's it's music to my ears but that uh, there isn't room for that voice it's not so much the role uh, of the person who is the psychologist, it's is that that element of the patient's life intruding into a particular sort of discussion. Well, do you want to comment on that at all, Gabriel? I mean, is there room for all these voices? So finally, we've got to get on and do something. 
I mean, you're asking the wrong person because surgeons are, you know, we, we just don't even believe in the MDT, do we? I mean, the MDT is a multidisciplinary team for anyone that... Of course there yeah. is room, and I think people who really, really are good at making room don't become surgeons. Hmm. I, I, I'm, I'm, I, think, I think it's a very difficult one. Hmm. I have always found it really difficult. I really, really loved palliative care as a medical student because it was to do with death. Hmm. And I found it very difficult being in palliative care MDTs where every voice seemed to have equal weight. Because? Because I thought the doctor's voice should have the most weight. Because? Because I thought they knew the most. I know that's a very no, 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 unappealing thing to say, but that, I did think that. Yes. And do you think, is there a sense at all that that belief, so that, and we, which is still there, it's, it's loud in medicine, is being mirrored and perpetuated in men thinking that about women? In medicine. I, I have to say, I mean, I, I just, uh, maybe, I mean, my oldest friend always says that I am a man. She says you're a biological man that just has blonde hair or something. I, I have never experienced sexism hmm. in my medical time. Explicitly, anyway. Well, I, I just have never felt it. And I don't know whether that's because I basically am a bloke. I don't know. I just have never, ever felt diminished right. as a concert. You know, I just, I have, mm. I've, interestingly, in the very early days, mm. when I was in my 20s, I did have difficulty with some of the nurses. And now I don't. Now that I'm middle-aged, I'm a mother and so on, I have very good relationships with the nurses. But in the early days as a junior doctor, I found some of the nurses... And is that because as a junior doctor? I wonder if the other student thing here, that is, you know, that because there's such a need to prove yourself as being I don't, I don't know, I just, one. I remember there was, at, that at King's, there was a ward called Cotton Ward that was, was full of very, very glamorous and beautiful nurses, that was where all the, the male doctors went, was to Cotton Ward, and I, I remember doing a, a sort of stint on that surgical ward and doing an on-call one in every four, and this particular group of nurses used to call me every hour on the hour and get me to come down to do something on the wall that sort of didn't really need doing. And, and when it was my male colleague, he never got called by them because, he, you know, there was that relationship. Well, he was probably were, hopeless. Well, no, he was very, <laughs> very him. good. But it, it, I remember clearly at the time thinking, I can either complain about this and resist it, or I, what I actually did do is I just, I just did it. And after a few weeks, they found someone else to pick on. That never happens anymore to me. I'm afraid we have to stop there. I know. Um, a very big round of applause. Sean Elliott, Sarah Moss. Thanks, Sam.